Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Stephanie Serens. She is a happiness enhancer. Grief became her constant companion at the age of 15 when she found her hardworking 39-year-old father dying from alcoholism. Stephanie's journey through grief was quite messy at first. She turned to booze and drugs to cope with her grief until she found AA affirmations and the ability to talk about her feelings. The affirmations you will read in her books come from her 42-year journey into grief, self-love, and her acceptance of the impermanence of life. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I feel blessed to be able to share my message of, you know, we're all going to die, but maybe we don't have to be stuck in in all the grief for so long as I was. And so if I could help shorten someone's grief by even a day or a year or I don't know. I feel, I mean, my dad died when I was 15 and I never had a conscious memory of it till I was 29 again after, you know, it was a really stressful time. So can you go explain that a little bit more deeply, the conscious awareness of that? Yeah, well, it was like my subconscious had shut out that I had even had that experience. Like I didn't have a memory of it or anything that I had found my dad until after I went through AA and sobered up, it was just like my brain had blocked that memory because I didn't couldn't handle it, I guess. Like we couldn't talk about my father dying. Like me and my mom would just cry. So we just, you know, and they told, you know, my mom's friends, I remember them telling her to take us to counseling, but it was 1980. So people didn't go to counseling then because then you had something wrong with your brain. And oh my gosh, that's just too humiliating. So we just got to muddle through on our own. And then when I quit drinking at 24, that really helped me to be able to talk about my feelings and just realize that, wow, everybody's a big mess. Like, because we all go around just pretending everything's good. And how are you today? Oh, fine. I'm doing good. How are you? And all these, you know, just on the surface conversations and so many people had with me, right? That until I went to AA, I didn't know that people, well, so many people are suffering and that um, a lot of people had it way worse off than me. And that it just helped me put my life in a bit of more perspective that um, like that old Buddhist story, take a cup, if you have a grief, take your cup and fill and ask for some butter to anybody that didn't have any grief, right? And you pretty soon learn that everybody has grief and that ev- everybody has a hard life and that, you know, the sooner we can see that and just come together and support each other, the better life will be. And so that's my goal is to just try to be supportive to my friends and family and clients and mm in my reflexology and Reiki and happiness enhancing uh, affair that I'm trying to get everyone to, you know, take the life a little lighter, right? We're all so serious about things and stuff. And so how can we be more gentle and not worry about it so much? Everything. Well, and share the burden, right? It's yeah. sharing the burden. And I think too, what I've connected what I've connected in the work that I do with clients and Reiki and grief work and all of that too, is, is that those that have an openness to healing and to their own embracing their own story are much able to connect with others more deeply 
And because they've probably connected with themselves in a way that has brought them some lightness, right? And so if we open ourselves to that process, beautiful things really can come from it. And um, Mm. so what did that look like for you? I mean, because your father had, he was an alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was that pretty much all of your upbringing? That's all you really knew? Yeah, he was he was a functional alcoholic, right? So he went to work and then he drank. But and so yeah, that was what I saw and experienced because he was a drunk my whole, you know, he it got worse, but you know, he was always partying with his friends and playing pool and everybody had a pool table and a game room and you know, that's how we went over to everybody's house and took turns and had drinking parties, right? <laughs> so, um you know, all of my parents' friends had a shorter lifespan than their parents, right? Mm-hmm. Like my mom's dad, I mean, my mom, my dad's mom was 74 and my mom's parents were into the 80s and 90s when they went. And my mom had terrible rheumatoid arthritis because she was x-rayed for acne in the 50s for uh six months, two or three times a week, they baked my mom under an x-ray machine called a treat master to heal her acne. Like, come on. So anyway, her mom should have just quit making all them sweetie things. Wow. So, yeah. So it was really, my parents weren't very happy in life. My mom never felt very well. She used to wake up even in her thirties and say, I feel like grandma pity poo. Right. And so when I grew up after my dad died and stuff, I just wanted to be happy. It's like we have a house and dirt bikes and horses and stuff, and but nobody has any happiness, right? How do I get happy? And so I just started reading self-help books and um, figure trying to figure it out on my own, right? What age was that when you started reading the self-help books? It was actually before my dad died. My first one, I have my front, this is my favorite one, Working with the Law. And it's about God's law. And I bought a whole bunch of them. So this is one of my last ones that's brand new. But I've probably read this book about five times. And in it somewhere it says, you could manage your mind or your mind will manage you. And I thought, well, I want to be the boss of my mind. Well, little did I know how hard that would be some days, right? That, you know, and to just um, take responsibility for my emotions and my thoughts and train my brain what I wanted to think instead of just thinking it gets to think whatever it wants. So, I mean, first of all, I think to have that awareness at 15, right? Like, how do I find happiness? I just, you know, and to have that, it's like all this stuff is around you. I should be happy. Why am I not happy? Right. So like what, I mean, gosh, if I would have had that awareness at 15, (sighs) I mean, if only all of us would, right? But um, what, I mean, I don't even know where to go from here. I think it's because my family had enough money, right? My mom's parents were quite well off. I mean, not like rich, rich, but my grandpa had his own car lot. And then my grandma invested the money in stocks and all that. And so, um, so, I mean, in my grandma's house, the golden rule, literally on a plaque up in the kitchen, The golden rule said the one with the gold makes the rules. And my grandma had the gold and she made the rules, right? And so I think because we had enough money, there wasn't, 
that wasn't the problem, but it was just no happiness, right? My dad, I don't, I think my dad didn't like his job. And so that's why he drank. And then all his friends, their wives worked, but he had to be the only worker. And then my mom even needed a housekeeper, even though she didn't even do anything, right? So, I mean, I can only, my wife, I can't even clean the house and she doesn't even work. And, I, you know, I can only imagine right now that I'm an adult, right? And so, but of course, I didn't understand all that then, right? And so, so just the grieving, you know, I was like daddy's little girl and we did everything together and went fishing and had fun and then when he left, I was like, well, why am I here with mom? Why didn't you take me with you? Oh, my gosh. Right. And so I was just so distraught. And, and it's like, you know, I'm just going to die. Well, what is the point of this whole thing? You're just going to die? Like, this is kind of pointless, this life thing, isn't it? And so I really had to find a whole reason to live in everything because I was so confused at 15 that I didn't even, you know, I, I, I fantasized lots of times just driving off the road, right? I because I just didn't get what was supposed to happen next, right? And so now what I've kind of learned is all that happened so I can help other people grieve. Like my friend Julie loved my dad, married a man like my dad, and her husband died like almost exactly the same. Like she had four kids, but and her oldest one was like 16 or so, and the youngest one was six or seven, just like me, you know, really close to me and my brother's age, right? He was eight years younger than me. And so to, you know, and now I've been able to help her family through, she has a son that's having terrible, terrible times. And through his life, I've gone and down and helped and stuff. Cause I just understand the grief that, that, that he's going through that, you know, she never took the kids to counseling either when the dad died and all the grief, right. Even though it was 20 years later. Yeah, I was going to, that, that, thank you for bringing that up again, because I did want to circle back to that. You know, even you said 1980, not much has changed, I think, in a lot of ways. I think with COVID, that's really, I'm hoping that we don't take five steps back, 10 steps back once maybe life seems to feel more settled and secure with COVID moving forward. I hope we don't take steps back in the terms of mental health and in addressing that and the needs of kids and everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, my dad was, I was eight when my dad passed away. And so wow. I, I grew up with grief too. And, you know, so that wasn't emulated obviously for you, like how to grieve, right? Like you didn't know what to do or how to process and things. And it sounds like you didn't have that kind of relationship with your mom either. Is that accurate? Oh yeah. Yeah. Me and my mom were very, yeah, if my mom told me to do something, I wouldn't, I would do it the opposite way. Like we didn't, because there was a, you know, because she was jealous. I mean, she was even jealous that I had got boobs, right? Well, I thought, well, your dad didn't sit you on the lap and look at Playboys. I sat in my lap with my dad and he probably looked at Playboy magazine. So I knew you had to have boobs if you're going to be a girl or nobody would like you. So I prayed for boobs when I was five, mom. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just so interesting growing up and you know there's so much we could have been taught in school that you know about psychology and self-personal growth and stuff that we just leave out of school I don't know where they think we're going to learn at church or at home or well and that's the thing you know I I personally feel like it is the responsibility of a parent to guide your children through all of those things but when you haven't learned it yourself 
you're going to resort to what you know, and those patterns and those beliefs are going to be passed down. Yeah, no doubt about it. So that's why I, you know, we in grief recovery, we have a program that's helping children with loss. That's prevention. But truthfully, like, I look at it like the most important grief that needs to be addressed in a home with children is the grief of the parents. Because if they can learn to process their grief, they will teach their children and guide their children through that process naturally and holistically. Yes, totally. Yeah. But for so long in our culture, it was just suck it up, buttercup, right? And now we've almost gone the other way that we're exploring emotions ad nauseum sometimes a little too much, I think, right? It's like we have to have balance even with our emotions because we get too buried in them just going down the rabbit hole. Well, then we're stuck there. We have to find a way to, you know, to have it in the background, but be able to move forward, even though those experiences were hard or whatever, right? Well, I think of two terms like coping. And like you said, like a balance and it's finding that emotional regulating, yes, you know, for exactly. yourself rather than trying to cope and it's learning to regulate yourself there, you know, in parenthood, it's challenging anyway. It brings up everything and all your insecurities. It is challenging to regulate your emotions. But again, I think it comes back to addressing your insecurities as a parent. It has ripple effects for the kids. It totally does. And so growing up for you, you started to read personal development books and started to kind of pave your own path to healing. What did that look like for you? Because I know you said you did, you went to AA and things like that, but what was life like before you got to that point in, because oh. you said you had resorted to drinking. Was that as a teenager too? Oh yeah. I started drinking. Yeah. Well, as soon as I got at 15 and a half, I was already starting to drive, right? Pretty much after my dad passed away. And I'd already been riding motorcycles and stuff before that. So I knew how to drive, right? And so, and then I just started drinking and partying and I got myself, my first boyfriend was 21 when I was 16. So he could buy the booze, right? And so that was very convenient. And, And then once I graduated school, you know, I just did whatever I wanted, right? My mom would take my car away and because I was misbehaving. And then I would be good Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'd sleep in. She'd have to give me the car so I could go to school, right? So I, my poor mom, right? I just did whatever I wanted. And she really, you know, I went from being this angelic child to, you know, listening to ACDC on the highway to hell, right? <laughs> so. You know, it was quite shocking for my mom and, and my whole family, the transformation that I went through, right? And my even my schoolwork, right? I was almost an A student to just barely graduating and, you know, failing classes and all kinds of stuff, right? And so just because I had so much pain, I didn't understand and no one could get, no one was even trying to help me understand, right? I was just having to figure it out on my own. That how, what is this whole point of this life thing like? I got to go through all this and I'm just going to die. And it's like, oh, my, you're right. This was really, um, I was totally in shock, right? Like, because my dad just, he um, he came home from the from work and he had crashed his car, but, and just right out in front of our house. So when I got up in the morning and looked out the main house window, I could see my dad's car was up the road instead of like put it in the garage. 
And so not that I could have seen it in the garage, right? I just shouldn't have seen my dad's car. So, of course, I just go running out there. And then he was laying in the road dying, right? Like he died on the way to the hospital. Some man was coming back too. like when I was coming up to my dad, another guy was coming back and he had already somehow seen my dad, went home, called the ambulance and then was coming back to check on him or something. Right. And then so I just ran and told my mom. And then so and I already knew when my mom came into the driveway of the neighbor's house, I said, oh, my dad's dead. I says, what do you do? You know, in my own brain, like with your kid brain. And I'm like, well, how can you know that? No, they're back too early. He's dead, right? So somehow I knew, right? And and uh, not that that helped any, but, you know, and I just remember thinking, well, now we don't have to worry if my dad's coming home anymore because he's just not going to come home, right? Because my mom would sit at that, looking out that window that I saw the car being wrecked at. When's Jim coming home? When, you know, because he worked ship work at a pulp mill, seven days a day shift, two days off, seven days a swing shift, two days off, seven days a graveyard, four days off. Um, so the times he came home was always switching around, right? Well, and that's incredibly taxing on the body alone. And so, it's you know, terrible. did he have a lot of grief himself, do you think? And I know you had mentioned that part of his drinking was possibly due to like just the relationship that he had with your mom, but, and we're not to analyze your father's grief here, but I want to connect the dots of how this cyclical pattern repeats. And so what was his experience growing up? Do you think that? Yeah, I don't think that, I think my dad got a girl pregnant and had to marry her and felt very trapped by his life. And I don't think that he enjoyed his job very much at the pulp mill even though he did it for 18 years, right? I mean, he made the best of it and he was a hard worker and he would go help his friends build their houses or whatever. You know, if you gave him a beer, he would do anything. And, you know, he was jolly and happy and, you know, always the life of the party, right? And But under his grief, I think he had a lot, right? I mean, his, I'm sure his parents weren't emotionally intelligent. I remember his mom being quite strict and harsh and, you know, Grandma Sorensen only had sex once a week, once a month, whether Grandpa needed it or not. That was the story, right? So I think from a very strict, but I mean, before the pill, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be having sex all the time. You're going to be having babies all the time. Nobody can afford that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. And so I think there's, you know, I think our families have been so traumatized and stuff by wars and everything and just... There, you know, there wasn't anything about emotional growth, right? It's just like you are how you are, and that's just how you are. And, you know, whereas it didn't have to be like that. You can have emotional growth, and you can change your life, and you can go. You don't have to be stuck in the same class or system or whatever if you work on yourself, right? You know, and you don't get caught up in all the sadness, right? Because it's how we feel creates our life. So if we feel like bad and sad, then we're just going to create more sadness. We had to, even if I, like in my marriage, my last marriage, my ex-husband used to slap me around and I would say, oh, well, thank you for that because I got to learn something not to be mad at why it happened, right? Because the person who taught me reflexology and where I got that book working with the law, um, my mom's reflexologist, he let me know that you had to be thankful for everything if you want to have a good life. 
because that's how you stay in the vibe of abundance by not that's why it says have faith in the bible and all that right like because you don't worry about what's going on in real life you keep the faith of and then that's how it turns out good right and so i that's just what i've been trying to dedicate my life to is just keeping the faith no matter what life looks like now it all like just what it's happening in the world people are all worried i'm not worried because it always turns out the best for me but right so i'm not going to worry because i'm going to be in the right place at the right time right and i think if we could all think that more then the the hard parts are easier it's not that i don't have hard things to go through or whatever anymore but it's just that i'm at peace with it and it's okay i don't i remember when I read The Road Less Traveled, and the first sentence was, life is hard. That made me feel so good. Like, oh, life is hard? Oh, well then, okay, I can feel all right. It's not like it was just hard for me. It was just hard, period, right? And so, you yeah, know, I to not, not be so worried about it. I think that's what AA, I learned in AA that, gosh, you know, my parents were pretty good, really, compared to some of the parents out there. Like, they didn't even feed their kids, right? Like. They beat their kids, right? I didn't get beaten. I didn't. Get, I had food, right? I had a grandma that took me to the fanciest children's bootery and bought me the best shoes once a year, right? So, right. So I had a lot of advantages. A lot of people didn't have, even though I still was just a blue collar family. I resonate in a lot of what you said, and I think there's some people listening that might think that, well, that's really a Pollyanna approach, you know? Like, have you been told that, like, how? I don't worry about anything. Nothing is worth worrying over. And worry, I, I've I've read too that worry is a prayer you never ask for. Like it's, but some might view that mentality as Pollyanna. But for me, I would always try to find the silver lining, like the well, at least this didn't happen, or at least I have this. You know, so it's it's kind of taking the situation and just and reframing it. Like I became a master at reframing because I think I would have succumbed to my own grief had I not learned the power of reframing. Yes. I think you said it very well. I think that's exactly where I was. I was just so overcome by everything that because my mom wasn't well. Right. So, and we had horses and stuff and we had bored horses that I took care of. And there was a lot, right? Like, my friend Julie told me once, I can't believe how much you had to do. I thought it was so your parents were so mean because you had to do all this stuff. I never thought that. I loved the animals. I loved taking care of them. I wanted to have a farm. Thought I was Laura Ingalls Wilder reincarnated, right? I love that show. <laughs> Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, I love that show. And I think just having something to nurture, right? Something else to take care of. And I, I, you know, I've heard too, like I've read in grief and I know that with grief, the, the fastest way to get out of your own sorrow is to help someone else or something else, like turn that, take that love with nowhere to go. Right. Yeah. And put it into something else and you put it into your animals. And so have you ever, I, I, I mean, I imagine you have, but I'm sure you've reflected on that time and those animals are probably the blessing in disguise that you had. I was always trying, I didn't live on a farm. We lived in town and I've, I always wanted to live on a farm, but I would always, I was the kid that always brought stray animals home. <laughs> you know, I just, it's because too, like I had this love with nowhere to go. Like I didn't know what to do with it because 
Um, in a lot of ways, it was rejected in my house and it wasn't emulated for me. And I think that's so important to to have somewhere for that love to go. Yeah, no, for sure. It, I was very lucky to have the horses as my friends and the dogs and whatever, you know, all the animals that I got to tend and stuff. It was very healing for me. And it, I mean, and it even teaches you about life and death. I mean, a friend of ours had some goats. I was going into goat 4-H. I got a couple of goats. Some cat came in, gutted my goats, and they both were dead, right? I mean, you know, there's lots of death on the farm, right? And, you know, my dad wanted to raise cows, so we went and got nine three-day-old baby calves. So then I had three baby, nine baby calves to feed. Well, we didn't know nothing about it, and luckily four of them lived somehow. Five of them died, right? I mean, I think that was good that I learned that, but it's even though I had experienced, you know, previous deaths of grandparents or different things, that still didn't prepare me for an out-of-order death when your parent dies so young. Or if you have a child that dies, that's another kind of an out-of-order death that's like there's not even a word for it, right? They say when you lose your kid, right? So so how did growing up with grief shape your life in adulthood? I think it helped me to to enjoy my life more, to really understand that it, that I do have an effect of my life because I was able to cope with the grief, right? Like I overcame it and dealt with it. And even if it took years and years, and uh, it's helped me to make peace with death. So I think death is my friend now, and I'm not scared of it. And, you know, I've even been thinking about becoming a death doula or something like that, right? To help people to be able to cope and to help even um, make funerals, right? Like I reached out to a, a group that does a grief subscription to help people. And they wanted someone to help write about to people to cheer them up about grief. And they wanted you to have a degree and stuff. And I don't have a degree, but I thought I'd apply anyway, right? And see what happens. And so I might get to write for their paper, right? And so just to be able to to, to reach out in different ways, to be able to connect and help people understand that there's we're going to have grief. And to not, you know, be so hung up on, I mean, we're all going to die and to be able to just have a good cry and then be okay, right? And move forward, right? To not just be stuck like I was for so long and irate and just like, I can't even believe that my dad died and oh my God, and that's not right. And just, I was just so spinning and spinning and spinning, right? And to be able to come out of that and move forward in my life. And to not worry about death anymore. I know I'm going to die and I hope it's sometime in the future. But if it's not, oh, well. And I I think it even helps me deal with all this mess of the coronavirus, right? And everything. Because it's like, I'm not worried about it. I'm going to be healthy until I'm not. And if I'm not, oh, well, then probably there'll be someone to help me because I try to be helpful, right? And I don't, you know, to don't worry about things because it just causes more stress. And then you get more wrinkles. We don't want wrinkles. Then we pay thousands of dollars on creams and stuff. My mom died. Oh, my gosh. There was so much anti-aging creams and soaps. I gave out swag bags, practically. I had all these little baskets of stuff for people to take and remember my mom. And, you know. And so when my mom died just a few years ago, it was so easy because my dad had died. It was so traumatic, right? And so even though it was hard and icky, now it's like, I can't say it's nothing when people I love die, but it's certainly the worst one I'm sure happened already, right? Because it was so traumatic for me. 
Well, and because the relationship was different, right? Yes. I mean, every loss is going to be different because the relationship is unique. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. I didn't think of it like that before, but yeah, for sure. How did, you know, people will say to her, I don't know, they say, I don't know who they is, but you, you tend to marry your parent, you know, you tend to look for someone or marry someone like your parent. Did you find yourself as an adult, like attracting someone like your father to you or had you come so far in your healing that it was very different of it it was a different experience yeah no I didn't really marry people like my dad so much I didn't marry any womanizing men but I think that uh, uh, but I married my other own kind of weirdness men right and because this is my third marriage and this marriage is I'm out, I'm out coming into the 18th year. So I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> and, and uh, but yeah, my other marriages were very, I was just, al- I just felt so alone and lonesome and I couldn't stand to be alone. And I just, I just wanted anybody to like me. Right. And then as I aged and progressed, it was like, no, I mean, I remember sitting at a wine bar and one lady was like, as I get older, I get less pickier. And I thought, as I get older, I'm way more pickier. It's like, I'd rather be alone than put up with what, you know, I've put up with sometimes, right? So it's just more, I think it's been just helpful to to be able to know, really listen to what I want. And like, I was committed to not having children. Like, I didn't want kids. And, you know, when I turned to menopause a few years ago, I was like, shit, I did it. I didn't have any kids. I kept that word to myself, right? And and that meant a lot to me that I did that. And so because um, just ra- I felt like I needed to re-raise myself. How could I trust some guy to be there the whole time? My ex-husband didn't want to have children. Uh, my first husband wanted to have children, but I was just like, you know, you tell me you have two children and I haven't met them. So I think you're not really dad material, I thought, right? And so my first husband was a partier and a, a drunk. And so he was kind of maybe, but not, but he wasn't hardworking or anything good like that. <laughs> so, but the quality yeah. of, of looking for alcohol to soothe the self is, was similar oh. to your father then. Oh yeah. It was terrible. Well, especially for me too. I, I've even thought now if, a, if my dad was killed by alcohol, right. And his proclivity to drink. And I had always thought, well, what if an assassin had killed my dad? I wouldn't have dated the assassin, but I did sort of date, right? Like, because I drank so much. Like, I was in AA when I was 24. I got a DUI when I was 21. You know, so I drank, you know, I drank and drove all the time. Drive blackout, right? Get home. Don't know how, right? Lots of times. But I would tell my dad when I was drunk, he's dead, right? You had to get me home, right? Right. And I guess he did. Because here I am still, right? When a lot of times when, you know, I was probably, you know, I don't know how I got there. So how old were you with that first marriage? I got married the first time 21. Like very new in your grief yet. Like that's not very far out from your grief. And you hadn't addressed it by then, really, have you? Had you? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I had, I didn't even start addressing. Even when I went to AA, I wasn't really starting to address my grief. Till I was in my second marriage. My ex-husband really helped me. He had worked on himself a lot. And I learned more about self-help books and even more uh, salesmanship books and just personal growth 
so many different kinds, right? That's when I really started reading. And I also, I worked at a private college and so I cleaned the bookstore. So I was open to a lot of college psychology books and different books that I could buy. Just, you don't, the, the bookstore will sell you a college book even if you're not in the college, right? And so I bought a lot of books that helped me to, to understand grief and grieving and personal development and all that stuff. To understand yourself. Yeah, really, to understand too. myself. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't have any understanding of what I, you know, why was I so upset and everything else. And so um, the grieving that I had that was so hard, I feel very relieved that I did it and that, you know, that and it you, helped me and hopefully I could help others, right? That's what I learned in AA too. No matter how big of a mess you are, you could still help someone. We're all here to help. You had mentioned that your second husband was a abusive in some ways yeah and so if he was working on himself was it I mean his journey was his journey but obviously that was more grief for you uh I guess when I met my husband I never had had a climax in sex and so I had been trying to find a man to help me with that and he helped me with that and that was such a relief that I thought maybe I could help him to stop hitting people too by loving him enough and giving him what I thought he needed, right? But all I learned in that relationship is people are just going to be who they are, and I'm not in the people-fixing business anymore. By the end of it, I just told God, geez, I'm not a very good person, because by the end of that marriage, I could remember laying there, like fantasizing, imagining, or whatever you want to call it, ending him, because he had hit me so many times, right, or slapped, and that it wasn't me, that he would hit anybody. And so that helped me to forgive him and to be able to move on because I realized by me staying there, he couldn't control himself. Then I was actually harming him by continuing to stay there. And so that's how I was finally able to leave because he had so much grief and there was so much. Someone put him in the dryer and turned it on when he was a kid. Can you imagine? Oh like he was so abused. They, his family had so much physical abuse, right? And so everybody hit everybody. And his brothers and sisters were really messed up. Like his sister moved into an apartment. She lived there two years. She hadn't unpacked a box. There was boxes stacked everywhere in the house. Like there's just rampant dysfunctionality, right? And so just to, we just were dysfunctional together and we helped each other as much as we could. And then when I realized, oh, this isn't working for me, I just left and started. I went to a battered woman's shelter and started over. And just, um, I even gave him the car and everything. I wanted him to just go away, right? And so he left and it was my car. And, and I knew that I would get a new car. And I did. I got another old beater and <laughs> it didn't cost very much and it worked okay. And, you know, just keep on moving forward and don't get stuck if something bad happens, right? Or if you make a mistake, oh, well, just un just undo it right so I left and started over and you know my first this is my first my first book was healing my heart after domestic abuse and just affirmations and then I and then my next one that just came I did in November last year it's the same principles just affirmations and just to try to help women or men whoever to be able to get out of their grief and their or their abuse and to realize how important our thoughts really are and what we think and what we feel. And it's not just like feeling sorry for yourself or worrying or being upset. It's just that's really is the problem is that we can't 
quit obsessively thinking about what happened because it's just what happened. And if we don't have to get hung up on it, then we can move through life better and it's easier. Because I was hung up on my dad's death from 15 to 29. I mean, I, I blocked it out and I didn't think, couldn't remember it. And that's how messed up I was from it. And then when I could remember it, then I could start healing and it's coming out of my cells and just, you know, have dreams about it again and let, and let it release from myself and move forward and just, like make friends with it. The whole I just, process. I just want to highlight one thing you said, cause I've never heard a reframing of that sort when someone has abused you and you've reconciled it in your mind in the way that I'm not helping him by staying here. I'm not helping him grow by staying here. And you're, yes. you know, to, to, that is so hard. Like to take in like in grief recovery, we say take 1% responsibility. And that's why the process of grief recovery can be so difficult for people who are abused. You know, I was molested as a child also. And so that was a really difficult part. That's why forgiveness is so hard for people, but forgiveness isn't for them. It's for you. But I think a part of that is just what you said. It's just taking just a sliver of responsibility of your ownership in that relationship, because it is a relationship. And a dance with grief when two dysfunctional people bring their all their baggage and they just dump their luggage and it's all just meshed together, right? That's <laughs> that's how relationships often start. And yeah. you attract like attracts like, right? And so I do want to get to where that changed for you because the relationship, obviously, once you started to let that grief come out. You attracted someone who who has now been your partner for 18 years. And so what did that look like? What helped you? I mean, I know you did AA, but what then what helped you progress in your and evolve your grief? I think um after my dad died, I was just so scared of being alone, right? That I would do anything to not be alone, have roommates, whatever, right? to never live alone, never be alone. And then like my ex-husband, we did everything together. We cleaned houses together. We rode motorcycles together. He even came into the public bathroom with me eventually, you know, like because I was so scared to be alone and make my own choices. I picked controlling people to make my choices for me. Then I don't have to be responsible and whatever happens, whatever happens. Right. And so then when during that marriage with Jeffrey, I, he was a salesman, right? And he, he sold me for years, I say, right? So, but I learned, he helped me understand psychology and people. And so really, I got over my fear of being alone during that time. And I just felt more confident around people. And just by reading all those self-help books and in that marriage that, you know, everybody's a mess and that life is hard and that, you know, everybody's scared in the whole world. And so by realizing that I'm not the only scared one, if someone lashes out or does something that makes me uncomfortable, I really kind of know now it's really coming from them. It's I'm triggering something inside of them, like someone triggers something inside of me. And I get upset sometimes too, right? I try not to, but on occasion, I still have a screaming meme fit if I try not to, but... You know, we're all only human. 
And if we can be more gentle with each other and not take it, you know, someone has a meltdown and then the other person takes it so serious that they they get their feelings hurt and then they lash out to the next person. And if we can just stop that repeating lashing out and realize, oh, that person just insulted me because they're hurting. I mean, in a, at, at 7-Eleven, they show you a video where a guy and his wife have a fight in the car and the guy comes in the store and he's so rude to you as a checker, right? To show you to not be triggered, right? That, oh, this guy's not mad at you. He just... And really that helped me in life too, that little psychological movie to help that, wow, it's really, you know, my dad was really frustrated in his life. So that's why he held me down and tickled me and did things to me that made me uncomfortable because he was uncomfortable. So if I could deal with my own uncomfortableness and not pass it on to someone, then that makes me feel like I'm I'm helping and that part of what I've lived through is helping that I'm not, you know, dumping my poop downstream, right? I dealt with it myself with me and God and talked it out with friends that are trustworthy and, and because we learned to share. I mean, that's what's been so hard about this COVID. We've been so separated from everyone uh, and we need to be able to talk and communicate and connect because that's how we realize, oh, I'm not such a mess. You have problems too, right? But in our society, I think we don't want to talk about that. I mean, you know, we are all, everybody's just puts on what is cool going on in their lives and talks about that. Meanwhile, you know, they just got kicked in the head last night like I did, but they didn't tell and I didn't tell, right? And if we can just realize that everybody's going through stuff and to, you know, to try and if they do something to us, oh, well, maybe, you know, someone was mean to them and it didn't have nothing to do with me. You know, because our parents are broken when they have us because, you know, we're and then, you know, that's why I didn't make any kids because I didn't want to break anybody. Right. Mm. (laughs) I thought I could always adopt if I needed some. There's plenty of people around. You know, you talked about death and how you're not afraid of that and and you've made peace with that. Is that Mm. something you've thought about going to the end of your life and and. Well, I mean, if you've made peace with being alone too, right? Like, so it's not, you're not seeking relationships for codependency reasons, right? You're seeking relationships to enrich your life. But I'm wondering if that decision to not have children, is that something that you think about as you're getting older now? No, I'm really glad. I'm especially with this COVID going on. No, I'm glad. I think there's, yeah, no, I'm so glad that I didn't have kids. I'm just going to make friends and, you know, even some of my people with people that have kids. Oh, well, I wonder which kid's going to take care of me when I get old. Like, I don't even think about that because it's just karma. If you do good, you're going to get good. So I don't worry about something bad happening. Sure, something bad's going to happen. The car will break. Somebody will die. I don't know. The government's going to collapse. Who knows what's going to happen? I've been thinking that recently. I thought, you know, when I incarnated here, nobody promised me sane governments, right? (laughs) You know, nobody promised me sane partners, right? And so I think we just, we just expect a lot in life. Mm -hmm. And we expect to, we see so much richness on TV and plenty and, you know, that it's just ridiculous. I, I mean, I heard in Cuba, 
because they don't have TV and all this stuff, that they don't have as much body shaming issues, right? Well, hello, <laughs> you know, that'd be great if we didn't have women injecting silicones in their butts or something to make it bigger. I mean, I can't even. I think it's just really important to just stay focused on really what's important. Do we have enough food? Do we have a house to live in? Do we have some friends? Not, am I going to be the richest person on the planet? You know, am I going to be the next Bill Gates or whatever, right? I'm hoping somehow this COVID is going to bring us down to a little more reality of really what, you know, 200 years ago, nobody traveled. Nobody went anywhere, you know? I know. And isn't it crazy to think of how far the, all the advancements and all of the stuff in a hundred years, just in the last hundred years, even 75, 50 years, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. It's like, we are the most spoiled. <laughs> we are the most spoiled generation, but we're probably in a lot of ways, the most miserable. And it comes back to like what you said, it's like, you can have all this stuff, but what, what is enriching your life experiences, deep yeah. conversation, deep connection, you know, and we can't experience that if we don't address the stuff that's like lurking in us. Exactly. And, and I, at least nowadays we have enough time to explore some of it. I think before life was so hard that you just, you know, I can't even imagine having six kids and women had no rights. You had as much rights as the dog, right? I mean, really just not that long ago. You know, being grateful for everything's really saved me. I swear that little piece of advice. Just if even if you, I'm grateful that I'm late, because if I was any earlier, maybe I would have got in a terrible car crash. Right? I mean, I'm really good at making I tell make up good stories instead of bad stories. We need to have a running. Oh, it's going to work out terrible and everything's in bad. No, it's always going to work out the best for me. I have environmental illnesses. So I have a mask from that's from for bicycle riding from Europe that sometimes I wanted to wear because I'm car exhaust and stuff. I burp and I don't feel good. And my husband's an artist and we do outside shows sometimes where there's more traffic than my body's comfortable with. So, or I like at the end and I'd put my mask on because there's so much cars going by and the exhaust just from the cars will make me burp. And so, so now the whole world's wearing a mask so I can wear my mask more. See, it always works out all the best for me. Like, and I make up silly, ridiculous stories like that because it's no more ridiculous than saying, oh, my God, nothing's going to work and I'm not going to have any money. And oh, my God, and nobody's going to love me and I'm going to be alone forever. Right. Like, it's just a story. So just make up a better story. Right. Abraham Hicks. She's like, just pick the next better feeling thought. And what if you're depression, then rage is better than depression. Well, how great is that to hear? Oh, hooray. If I'm upset that. Right. Well, and rage can be a very good motivator too. Anger yeah. is a very good motivator. It is. The house gets very clean if I'm angry. <laughs> yes, I am the same way. Ragey <laughs> mom, clean house. <laughs> and so you, you got to channel it, right? Right. You get, might as well channel it and pour it out and get rid of it and do something productive with it, right? You know, chopping wood uses a lot of rage, right? Yeah. No, I love that. I find myself the same thing, like making up stories. If someone like the checkout person, if they're rude to me or whatever, I'm pretty good at making up stories. Well, you gave a little piece of advice there about gratitude, but is there anything else that you would share with someone today who may be 
kind of where you were in that in between where you're just kind of on the cusp of this awareness of how much better life could be and how much sweeter life could be. I think it's just be gentle with yourself while you're going through anything and to not, we're so dramatic. Oh, right. Like I'm going to die or like me wanting to die as at a 16 year old, 17 year old, because I'm so enraged that my dad left me here. Right. And I missed out on all kind of fun and trauma and life, you know, and understanding. And so to just, you know, be to be patient with yourself and to be gentle with yourself and to don't expect ourselves to know so much. I mean, it's not like, you know, you don't get a course in life when you're born. It's like, like we learn to talk, but we can't read. That's kind of how life is, right? You don't, you just get thrown into things, right? Like, you don't have to have a training class to have a baby, right? You could just get pregnant when you're 12 or whatever. You have a period and you get pregnant. It's like, huh? How'd that happen? I mean, I'm sure that's what my dad was like. How'd I get a baby? You're kidding me. That's how it happened. Like, really? I don't, he was pretty oblivious, my dad, to it all, right? Like, and, and I think that's how lots of people go through life. It's just, they didn't make choices. It just happened to them, right? And so I think by me choosing that I didn't want to have kids, that started a whole bunch of changes because, and whatever we decide in life, one of my friends, she wanted to have six kids. I was like, wow, okay. And she did it. And I was like, wow, all right. And then she's dealing with that, which she's created, right? And it's, that was a hard one. Yeah, I just had but, with teenagers too, I have three teenagers and talking to them about choices and how choices, every choice, every single choice that you make has a consequence. And every thought you think has a consequence. And we're not told that in school, right? We're not, right? It's really what we think creates our actions and our beliefs. And that's your life, right? And so just how can we help each other to, to be more gentle? And I could have a boyfriend, my dad died. It's like, oh, well, that's one thing to be grateful about. I could have a boyfriend because he would have killed any boyfriend that came around, right? And he would be so mean. I would have never got a boyfriend. That's what I remember thinking. That, well, at least I could get a boyfriend now. Let me ask you this, because it kind of circles back to the whole idea that, you know, your thoughts are important and have consequences and thoughts become things. And so what about this idea of life is hard? I want to challenge you on that. That not that a belief that life is hard or is it that we make it hard? Well, I think for me, the day that I read that and how it resonated is that I sort of look at like how I how I thought was everybody else was having an easy time and it was just hard for me. But when I read that and that helped me have an understanding that, oh, life's just hard sometimes. Not that. And I do think that sometimes life is hard. I mean, to get up every day and chop wood and carry water. And I mean, could you imagine growing food and then the locusts come and like, you didn't have a grocery store with everything just right up the street. Like we're really, I mean, it's pretty easy for us, really. A lot of us, we don't have a lot of hardships and in that our past families have had to do. Like if you didn't grow the garden, really, you didn't eat, 
you know, and that kind of thing. And, or, you know, you got to go kill the animal and tan the hide. And so you could wear something, right? And that was on top of the grief they already had too, right? So, you know, a lot of those conveniences of life take away a lot of the grief that we'll never, hopefully, God willing, that we never experience, right? Or that we never feel personally. Yes, that we have a lot of comfort. And then I sometimes, when you have a hard thing, sometimes you learn something, but it's still balance and you still got to have a support system. And I sometimes wonder if with all the more, because I don't have to have someone with me, right? Our independence makes us more sort of ornery and individual, right? If it's, if I don't have to grow the garden and do this and the chickens and kill something and you know, and ha- sit around having a sewing circle so we can make a quilt and faster than 25 years, we'll all work on a quilt and then we'll make one and we'll make one for you and we all make a quilt, right? And that's how we used to do things all together more, right? But with the advent of petroleum, petroleum does so much work that we don't have to do, right? It digs the holes. It does lots of things and makes our life easier. And then the food, right? That's hard because people are eating such crappy food. They don't even have no energy. I mean, 200 years ago, guys cut down trees as big as my house with a saw with one guy on each end, right? Now we got to have a bigger truck because the guy can't even lift the garbage can, right? I mean, it's so... You bring up so many interesting perspectives (laughs) and thoughts. And it it really does just, it just really brings up for me that we used to do so much more with community. Like it it was, everything was done because you couldn't, I think it's really what this message, what it comes down to is that life was done with others, used to be done with others. And so much, and I think that's what the advancements perhaps have been a contributing factor to this isolation that we experience. Because even if they didn't talk about grief or it wasn't something that, but you know what, honestly, like when someone died back then, way back then, they would have their loved one with them for days and take pictures after they died with them. So everything, grief was even done differently back then. And so I think that with advancements, the advancements have come, have brought consequences, right? And I think it's this, like you said, this more isolating society. We're separated from death more. They they come and hurry up and take away the body and hurry out and off instead of, you know, you used to wash the body yourself and then bury it in the backyard, right? Or whatever. And so with the distances and all the modernization and that we don't even kill animals to eat anymore. Some guy does it in the slaughterhouse and has to kill all the animals for everybody instead of everybody just getting a little death on you, right? That's true. That's very true. And so I think that this we have a sterilization of our life more because of the modernization and the withdrawing of the from people and grief and everything, right? And we think it's supposed to be so easy. But no, gosh, everybody's hungry. I'm trying to grow a garden here. And you know, you plant a seed and you got this little baby embryonic plant, right? Like it's in the womb, right? It's a little baby plant, just one shoot. 
everybody eats that little shoot, like to defend that little shoot so you could grow it and eat it. Like, and so I feel very lucky to, to be able to understand the circle of life a little bit more. And if I can help someone else understand it more that, because I don't think we die. When I, I did a meditation, when my mom, I had said if she wanted a Reiki healing when she was getting ready to go and she said she did. And I was very shocked. And so I went down by to a beach by where we live and just did a little meditation. And in that meditation, first me and my mom, I, I saw her, we saw her body in the bed of the hospital bed, right? And we were just kind of like, I guess, hovering in the air. I couldn't see us, but we were, we were like a drone view of the bed, the hospital bed, an overview. And she was like a big giant raisin. I was like, oh, mom, I think your body's getting all tired and whizzled up. That's not looking too good, is it? No, it's not looking too good, is it? And then the next thing in, in my meditation, we went and we, we were walking up a path and it was very glowy at the end of the path. And as we got closer to the light, the glowing mass, it individualized more. And it was like, there was grandpa and there, not a, not a vision, but the feeling, right? There was dad and grandpa and Gordy and Alan and all these people waiting for my mom, right? And then I took my mom's hand and passed it, what it felt like to my dad. And so after that visualization, I'm not scared of death like at all. It's just, we're just light beings and we got these bodies and we just go back to the big ball of light. And there's going to be people there waiting and we're never alone. So would you say that's what grief has taught you? Yep, yeah, that we're never alone. It, ask and you shall receive. It's really true if you just ask and you don't and expect it to happen, but don't put a time limit on it and don't worry about it. Right? But then just trust and do your best. Cuz cuz we're all just here for helping and to and to be compassionate with one another if we can. So you mentioned Reiki. Are you you are a Reiki practitioner, Reiki master? Yeah, yeah, I do Reiki and reflexology simultaneously on a person. So I do the energy body and the physical body. And most of the time my clients are falling asleep on the table and I don't understand that mashing around their head and I'm like I don't know if I would be that. <laughs> But um, I feel grateful that to be, and then I write affirmations, personalized affirmations for people to help them. Just like a little short story, right? That's something good because I have friends that just ad nauseum berate themselves, right? And so can't we ad nauseum cheer ourselves up and say, oh, I did something good. I did the dishes today. <laughs> I didn't even have to cuss or nothing while I did it or, you know. All of the healing that you've kind of experienced in the last 15, 18, 20 years or so uh -huh. um, that has led to you. Like, would you say that Reiki found you? Because that's most Reiki practitioners I know say that Reiki found them. I've done reflexology since I was a teenager because I learned it to help my mom The from the reflexologist that she used to take us to. And he trained me to help my mom because she was such a mess. And then, but when my ex-husband, he used to have migraines. So I would sit and do the reflexology, but I, but before I even knew Reiki, I visualized having light come in my head and go out my hands, God's light, God's love, whatever good orderly direction. I would say, I don't know why Jeffrey has a headache, but you know why Jeffrey has a headache, God. 
whatever good orderly direction. And Jeffrey's body knows why Jeffrey has a headache. So maybe I could just like give him some energy and you guys could figure it out, right? And not take responsibility or anything for the energy. And then I read a Reiki book and I thought, I've been doing Reiki already. So then I got a Reiki, I became a Reiki master so I could actually learn what I was trying to do more. That's how I felt. So yeah, I think Reiki definitely. I, it's just like a mom. When your mom like kisses your boo-boo, that's Reiki, right? It's just like offering good, loving energy from your heart, right? But if you learn how to do it, well, then you can do it better. It seems like to me, you've kind of found the essence of who you are with your healing, right? You've come back to the essence of who you are, what you were doing with the animals and caring for the animals and helping them transition when it was their time and, and doing that for those that you loved along the way, right? Like that's really the essence it's. And I think in grief and when we're so far in it and deep in it, we can't connect to that part of ourselves. It's really difficult to. No. Yeah. Cause we're so overcome with the emotions and we're feeling so alone in everything. And cause we've decided, Oh, that person left and they did it. I mean, I thought, you know, my dad died because of me and I felt guilty for it, but it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with me. It had to do with all the thoughts he thought and the over only the overwhelm in his mind that he felt too alone and he felt overwhelmed or whatever it was that caused him to pick up a bottle every day. Right. And besides working at a very toxic place where they have you wash your car when you leave, but you didn't hose the shit out of your lungs, you know, and off your skin and working at a pulp mill was not very healthy. Right. And meanwhile, I know lots of guys that lived and retired and I even cleaned house for a guy that was over 80 years old who worked at a pulp mill forever. So it didn't have to kill you either, the chemicals, right? It's just how you perceive things and think. And Is there anything else that you would like to share? I just feel very blessed to be a part of your podcast and to have a chance to share my story and maybe cheer up a person and help them find the, their, their beauty in their own self and to not be affected so much by the fears and the angers of their families and whoever raised them and taught them the world how it should be pave pave your own path right yeah yeah to don't worry about what other people think and make up your own silly story and just do it i'm the happiness enhancer right i just made that shit up you know but i did (laughs) let but last year i did take um i love heart math the company heart math and so i i'm a heart math certified heart math mentor to help me be able to help people get in touch with their heart and to breathe actually breathe emotions through their heart right? And to be able to maintain heart coherence more often. Oh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. I love heart math because heart math is the study that that our heart really is more powerful than our brain. Because in our society, we're told our brain's more powerful than our heart. Mm. When When in the meantime, what's the first thing that forms in a human body in the womb? The heart. When does it start beating? At 18 to 21 days, do we have a brain? No, we don't even have a brain, right? When our heart starts beating, right? And that we have a brain, actually, there's brain neurons in our heart. There's brain neurons in your stomach. You have the same kind of neurons in your brain, in your heart and your stomach to help us 
to be able to connect with each other. I, I mean, we have a mirror neurons in our brain so that if someone's crying, we feel empathy because uh, that person needs us to feel empathy, right? And so that we can connect and that they've proven now that there's an aura, like they can measure this auric field that goes about, isn't it interesting, about six feet. Most people's heart energy goes about six feet. And then I'm fine that we're supposed to distance six feet. So I thought that was interesting. And that just, I love heart math because it proves that heart's more important than brain. And I think that it, that's true. And I think in our society, that's totally not emphasized at all. I would 100% agree with you. And I'm very curious about that. And so I will definitely be looking into that. Yeah, it's um, heartmath.org or heartmath.com. And the .org has all the scientific studies and stuff. And you can go down the wells. And the .com is um, a little bit more them reaching out and promoting themselves and stuff like that. But it's been going for about... I don't know, 20 or 30 years, heart math. And then, oh, if you haven't, oh, you're going to love heart math if you haven't heard of it. Oh, no, God. I've never heard of it. And so, and um, so I paid $1,400 so I could become a mentor. And that allows me to be able to train about 10 people. But I think I'm going to go for the, I don't know when, but I'll go and get the next one. So I could do like 100 people. And as then I could have as many, but not that it really matters that I could really get that many people together right now anyway, still, so. But yeah, just to, yeah, heart mouth is so fascinating and it really, to, and it's hard, like to actually generate a few, like you got a thing you stick on your ear and it measures like your heart coherence. And it's not that easy to keep the feeling of love going, not thinking about love, but to actually emanate a feeling and to get that heart, there's a, it can turn red or green or blue. And to keep it green, which means you're all like this, you know, uh, a monk, I would say, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it's fascinating to, I can generate it real good for about five or 10 minutes, and then it seems like it starts dropping off. And so um, I haven't worked with it as much as I could, but I would like to someday be able to generate that for 20 minutes or a half an hour or, you know, just constant if it would stay green but I can get it to go totally green for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then, you know, your mind starts to wander and you get, you know, to think about the laundry or something. <laughs> but I think that really it makes me think of gratitude, right? Like gratitude and, you know, loving what is good in your life and giving that appreciation is, is kind of up there with love, you know? So well, the more, the more we can, you know, the more you can just focus on whatever, you, we can do not not everything that we can't take anything you know i can't do nothing about what the governments do nothing about what anybody does except me and yep. what can i do well i could at least try to at least i could be generous and kind no matter what anybody else does and then i know someone's generous and kind and then i'll run into them a bit i love that <laughs> so where can people find you i know you've written a couple books my one book healing my heart after a loss is on amazon and I hope to get my other one on Amazon pretty soon because I published it through a different way the first time in 2014, in 2017. And so I just have to redo it in word. And so it's taken a little while. And, but anyway, so on, on 
Amazon and then uh, uh, healing my heart after a loss just comes up if you type it in the search bar. And then the, uh, and I'd like to send you a book for, I'd like to email you a book. If, I mean, I'd like to mail you a hard copy if you want to email me your address. Um, Cause I feel blessed that to have this opportunity to share my story and cheer up the planet. Cause that's my goal to bring cheer to the planet or cheer up the people of planet earth or cause it's, we all just take it too serious and, and happiness is healthy. That's my website. And I've been writing, I have a blog that I've been writing. It'll be my 10 year anniversary. I just thought of now when we were talking that my blog's 10 years old this year. And I've written affirmations. When I first started it in 2012, I was writing affirmations every day, just like a paragraph long affirmation to try to cheer people up because you, and that's why I made this a coloring book book. Like you color, you read in color. Cause then if you just read this once, that's not going to change your life, but because you have to read something over and over. There's a book called the greatest salesman. And it says in there, Ogmandino tells you to read it in the morning, read it in the afternoon, and then read it out loud. Each chapter, you read the little chapter, two or three pages, in the morning, the afternoon, and then out loud at night. And you do it for a whole month. And then, so it takes 10 months to get through that book if you really do what it says. But it's really like one of the things is I laugh at myself and the world laughs with me and I take myself, you know, and I don't make a big deal of things. And just, it was a long time ago. I can't even remember all 10 of them anymore, right? But I will laugh at myself. I live this day as if it is my last, you know, just lots of things to, you know, so that you don't waste your life. You, you take the moments that you get. I will put all of the links to everything you mentioned in the show notes. And thank you. I thank you so much for this rich conversation and for you sharing your story with my listeners today. I feel very blessed and thanks for having me. It's you're lovely. And, and I like you as much as your voice that I thought she has a good voice. So I'm going to reach out to her. So I love that. Thank you so much. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.